Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We have been um, moving through over the last few weeks the first part of the book of Exodus. And I want to give you a recap of where we've been because one of the big things that we've talked about as we've looked at the book of Exodus is that this is not a standalone book. A lot of times when we read the scriptures, you know, we have the ability just to open the book up and start wherever we want. And because of that ease of accessibility, sometimes we can maybe not intentionally, train our minds to think that all of these things are separate, that they can be disconnected. But one of the things that we've seen is that the book of Exodus is connected to a larger story. It's connected to what the events and and the promises and the covenants and, and the people of Genesis. And as we move forward, we will continue to see that the book of Exodus sets out some foundations for us to understand the rest of the scriptures. And so where have we been so far over the last couple of weeks? What have we seen? Well, we've seen that the, the people of God, the nation of Israel, that they are slaves in Egypt under the oppressive rule of an evil king who's called a pharaoh. It's a dark time, a time of fear, a time of despair, a time of hopelessness. And we saw at the end of, of chapter one that that the, the people of God were in the midst of genocidal conditions, that this madman, this Pharaoh, out of fear and insecurity, began to kill thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Hebrew baby boys. But as we enter into chapter 2, we see that in the midst of this hopelessness, in the midst of this grief and anguish and despair, in the midst of, of death, that one boy survives. One boy is spared, is rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised in Pharaoh's own house, and named Moses. And Moses grows up an Egyptian. But as we saw as we move through chapter 2, at some point he looks out and he begins to identify with his people, his Hebrew people. And he begins to see their condition and understand their fear, understand their hopelessness. And to some degree, he begins to internalize that. But instead of stepping up to lead them in a positive way, what we see is that Moses makes a terrible, impulsive decision that eventually means his exile from Egypt. It forces him out of Egypt into a land called Midian. And in Midian, he meets a man who's a shepherd. And he marries one of his daughters. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter 3. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. And if you're using one of the Bibles around you, you'll find that on page 27. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I want to move back there and give us, again, a little bit of context from last week. As we see at the end of chapter 2, I want you to focus on two phrases there in verses 21 and 22. The first is that Moses was content to dwell with this man. 
Moses was content to dwell with this man. And as he marries this man's daughter and they have a son, look what he names his son. He names his son Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. What we see here is that Moses, exiled from the land of Egypt, settles down and begins to make a family and even names his son a reminder of his position, a reminder of his circumstance, that he was an exile, that he was a stranger, that he was away from his country, away from his people. Now, if you're reading this in real time, or listening to this story in real time, it seems like God's plan has backfired, right? It seems like that God's plan to raise this to save this one boy, this one baby, to position him strategically in the very household of a man who's trying to wipe out the people of God, that God has raised this baby up into a man to deliver his people, to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And yet here we are and we find this man out of Egypt in a different land, settling down, making a family aware of his situation, that he is in exile. And you can't help but think, man, what is God doing? Moses' life has been really disappointing up to this point. The way that this has turned out is not what we thought God had intended. God's people are still in captivity, and Moses is out here in the wilderness somewhere. But remember, as we've talked about these last few weeks, The book of Exodus isn't primarily about Moses. The book of Exodus isn't primarily about the people of God. The book of Exodus is primarily about God himself. The book of Exodus teaches us who God is. In chapters 1 and 2, the author doesn't really mention God at all. We don't see much about who God is. At the end of chapter 2 here in these last couple verses, we begin to get a glimpse of God's presence as, he, as, as the writer tells us that God, be, that God sees his people, that God begins to identify with his people's suffering and their anguish and their grief, that God hears them and that God begins to move. And what we're going to see here in chapter 3 is that God comes into full view, that God bursts on the scene to reveal himself to Moses. It's not as though God was distant. It's not as though he was absent up to this point, but God begins to reveal himself in a new way, in a fuller way to Moses, and then by extension to his people. And we see that here in verse 1. But verse 1 starts with Moses as a shepherd. He's gone from a prince to watching someone else's sheep. Moses is in the wilderness. He's gone from a palace and a royal life to life in a desolate place. And like I mentioned, we can't help thinking, has God given up on Moses? Has God moved on to plan B? But in reality, Moses is now more ready for Yahweh, the God of Israel, to come into full view. Moses is now ready to be used by God. Look with me at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, out of, a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, 
And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. We see that phrase, the angel of the Lord. And we've talked about this a few times before on Sunday morning. This is a phrase that comes up throughout the Old Testament. This, this messenger from God, this angel of the Lord, which we believe is probably the pre-incarnate Jesus. Before Jesus became a man with a body, he served the triune God as the physical presence of God to his people on earth. And in this moment, this angel of the Lord, this this pre-incarnate Christ reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. Now, if you were Moses in that day, seeing a bush burning would not have been uncommon. You have to remember this was a dry, arid climate, that these plants and these bushes, they were combustible just because of the atmosphere that they were in. And so it wasn't uncommon for Moses probably to be tending his sheep, to be walking along, and to see little fires burst out on these on these plants and and on these bushes. But what was unique about this is that Moses saw this bush and it was covered in flames, but the bush itself was not being burnt. The bush itself was not being consumed. So this obviously sparks some curiosity in Moses. He's like, wow, I've not seen this before. So he begins to, 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 to walk over to check this out, to see what's going on with this bush. And here is the beginning of God throughout the book of Exodus, turning the natural laws upside down. It starts with a bush that should be consumed by this fire, but isn't to prove to Moses that God, this God, is different. That this God is different from all the other gods of the peoples of that day. If the sight of this burning bush wasn't enough to make Moses be like, wow, that's crazy, the bush then talks to him and calls out, Moses, Moses. And remember, the focus of the book of Exodus is about God. God is the focus, and what we see in this passage is the same. We see God revealing himself, answering the question, Who is this God? And the first thing we see here is that God is love. God is love. Now let me explain that. Because we hear Moses, Moses, and we think God is just calling to get his attention. And in a way, that would be right. But in ancient Semitic languages, to repeat someone's name was a common sign of affection. And we see that throughout the scriptures. We see God speaking to a little boy who's living in the, in the temple. And he calls out in the middle of the night, Samuel, Samuel. We see David upon hearing the news that the son he loves has been killed. He cries out, oh, Absalom, Absalom. Remember when Jesus said that not everyone who comes to him with words of love and affection saying, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself on the cross crying out to his father, my God, my God. And then God in Acts knocking a murderer, a persecutor of the church off of his horse and lovingly calling to him, Saul, Saul. So when God calls out to Moses, 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 God is not calling Moses into some business transaction. God is not calling Moses to be some kind of subservient uh, uh, lieutenant in his army. God is not calling Moses just to be a tool, to be a means to an end for what God wants to do. God is calling Moses in love because God is a personal God. God is a God of love, that he knows Moses. He has been near to Moses. He has not left Moses even when it would seem like God had. He was there all along. God's covenant with his people isn't some dusty real estate contract. It's a covenant with real people, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, real people whom God knew and God loved. And so when we talk about God's love, we often talk about it in his actions, that God is loving, that God shows love, that he, he displays love. But, for, but when we look at the scriptures, what we see is that action comes from who God is, that God is love, which means that love permeates everything that God does because love is God's essence. God is love. Later in Exodus chapter 34, as God is talking to Moses and, 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 and revealing more of himself to Moses, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Finally, Moses gets his audience with God. What we, the readers, have been waiting for. We've been seeing this coming, coming, coming. But when is it going to come? When is God going to move? When is Moses going to realize what God has in store for him? Finally, God comes to him and says, I know you. I love you. But that's not all God wanted Moses to know. Look at verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. <clears throat> and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God is love, but God also is holy. God is holy. Do not come any closer. In other words, I love you, Moses, but you don't belong here. You do not belong here. Take your shoes off. Take your sandals off. In reverence, acknowledge that you do not belong here because this is holy ground. God is different than us. Shocker. God is different than us, and that difference is dangerous. 
That difference is dangerous. God is different, and God is dangerous. You know, all analogies about God break down at some point, but think about God's holiness in terms of the sun. Okay, so the sun is so bright and so powerful that the sun's energy spreads throughout the galaxy, right? And it's a good thing. It's necessary for any kind of life to be within the energy of the sun. But we all know that at some point, that energy becomes dangerous if you get too close to it. It is the same with God. God's holiness is what brings life. God's difference, the fact that he is other, is what makes life possible. But it is also what makes him dangerous. It's what makes him unapproachable. God's holiness is overwhelming. And that's why Moses hid his face in fear. Because standing face to face, even with a a burning bush that represented God, not even God in his full self, was so overwhelming to Moses that he couldn't even look that he had to stop in his track because he knew he didn't belong there. This revelation here that God is holy helped Moses, and it helps us as we move through the book of Exodus, understand why God does some of the things that he does. It helps us understand why God said you have to remain at a distance later in Exodus when God's presence is on this mountain, that there was a distance that the, the children of God had to keep from that mountain. It helps us understand why God gave certain laws and certain restrictions to his people. It helps us understand even the layout of the tabernacle and why things were put in certain places, and especially that room that was called the most holy place, even down to what the priests were supposed to wear. All of these things were symbolic. All of these things were communicating a message that God is different, that you can't just stroll up on God, that you just can't roll up in his presence whenever you feel like it, that God is holy and that holiness makes him dangerous. There's a separation between us and God. So God is love. God is holy. And look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. So this is similar language to what we saw at the end of chapter 2, but notice those words, those emotive words. I have seen, I have heard, I know. And this is the beautiful thing about our God, that God is wholly different, that he is dangerous, that he is separate, but he is not detached. He is not detached. God is compassionate. God is compassionate. He is a God of kindness and a God of compassion. And that word Um, That idea of God's kindness and his compassion is often connected to the Hebrew word hesed. 
And it's that word in that, in that verse that we read just a few minutes ago in, in Exodus chapter 34, where God says, I am a God of steadfast love, of loyal love, of compassionate love. It's a word that expresses how God compassionately keeps his covenant and his promises to his people. That God's compassion for those who are suffering, for those who are afflicted, for those who, have, who are grieving, never, ever fails because it's connected to his love, his essence, who he is, and how he relates to those that he loves. And here, God communicates to Moses, I love you, but I'm holy, yet I see the affliction of my people, and I'm compassionate. I'm compassionate, and that compassionate love drives God to take action. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall serve God on this mountain. God is love. God is holy. God is compassionate. And God is a deliverer. God is a deliverer. Those, those two phrases, come down and bring up, are words that you will continue to see throughout the first five books of the Bible as, as, as the history and the story of the people of God is written. There, it is redemptive language that is used over and over and over again. That God's deliverance of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, will become a defining part of their relationship with them. He will be known to them for generations to come as the God who brought you out of Egypt. But notice, God's promise doesn't end with just bringing them out of slavery, does it? He brings them out of, the, out of slavery to take them to a better place to take them to a good land, a, an abundant land, and a land, a land that they can call their own. So much groundwork is being laid here in this passage for how we see God move from this point in history forward. And to Moses, imagine hearing these words. You know, he had seen this. He had seen his people. He had been frustrated about the way that his people were being treated. He, he had screwed that whole thing up and now was living as an exile, totally powerless to do anything about this. And yet to hear that God says, I have heard this and I am going to I'm going to work now. I'm going to act. I'm going to step into this thing and I'm going to deliver them. Imagine Moses is excited. He's like, yes. 
This is what I want. This is what my people want. Yeah, God, you go. And then God says, well, Moses, actually, I'm going to send you to do it. I am going to send you to do this delivering. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you are going to bring my people out of Egypt. And immediately, what do we see? Immediately, Moses, probably like any of us would do, starts backpedaling. I mean, uh, okay, who am I? Who am I? You are holy. (laughs) You are powerful. You are God. This is something you should be doing, God, not me. Who am I to do this? And we're going to get into this next week. But God comes to Moses in this moment of doubt and just like surprise and says, okay, I get that, but I'm going to be with you. I am going to be with you. And what God sets Moses up here is kind of, is, is he's setting him up for the climax of this passage. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses anticipated that if he was going to go back to his people and said, the God of your fathers has sent me, it's time to go. We're getting out of here. And they say, well, who is this God? Remember, they had been living in the land of Egypt, a land that worshipped many gods, a, a land that they had been living in for 400 years. And they were bound to begin to start thinking like, well, maybe there are lots of different gods and I don't know where our God, the God of our fathers fits into this. This was a legitimate question that Moses is asking. Well, what is your name? But notice, God did not answer his question at first, did he? God did not say, well, here is my name. Instead, he says, I am who I am. This is not a name, it's a statement. This is not God's name. It's God making a statement about who he is. I am who I am. We've seen that God is love, that God is holy, that God is compassionate, that God is a deliverer. And here we see simply that God just is. He is. Let me explain that. I am who I am is a statement. And it's hard to understand. It's kind of hard to translate. But it has that phrase in it, I am, which means to be. It's a statement of being, of essence. And it becomes a new name for God from this point forward. It's it's where we derive the name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh, and it simply means to be. That 
And what God is saying here, the statement that he is making, the thing that he is trying to convey to Moses and and by extension to his people in Israel is that he was the God that had been, who is, and who always will be. He is the God that their ancestors worshipped. That who he was at that moment is who he is eternally. That he is uninterrupted that he is changeless, that he is self-existent. I was reading this, this, this week, uh, someone said, commenting on this passage, that the best human that could ever live would have to acknowledge that I am who I am by the grace of God, but that God simply says, I am who I am, that God does not owe himself to anyone. That God is who he is, period. No one helped him. No one made God. No one put God in a position to do what God does. God is. And this is impossible for us to understand. It's impossible for us to, to, to comprehend. And that is what God is saying. That I am so much bigger. I am so mind-blowing that you cannot understand except to know that I am the same. I never change. I exist outside of time and space and human history, and yet I dive into human history, and I am present within time and space. I am who I am is a declaration of authority. It's a declaration of superiority. And what God begins to tell Moses in the rest of this passage as you read down, and you can do that on your own, God begins to tell Moses, because I am who I am, this is what's going to happen. This is how the people are going to respond to you. This is how Pharaoh is going to respond to you. But most importantly, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I am going to do. You are about ready to see that I am who I am. I do not change. I am different. I am different from all of the other gods. So what's the connection for us? What's the the big idea here for us? God has always been in the business of revealing himself to humanity. God doesn't start with who we are He always starts with who he is. Because God is who he is. He is the beginning. Nothing about who we are, about this world, about our understanding of life, starts anywhere else but with God. God reveals himself in creation. If you remember Romans chapter 1, Paul, talking about God, says what can be known about God is plain to us, Because God has shown it to us. God does not withhold. God is not saying, hey, I'm going to play hide and seek with you here. God says, this is who I am. He shows us. And Paul goes on to say that his eternal power, his divine nature, those things are clear to us in the things that God has made. When we look at nature, when we look at creation, God says, you can know that there is a God. You can know that this God is powerful, that this God is who he is. God reveals himself in creation. God reveals himself in his scriptures. 
in Psalm 19, David talks about creation and he says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. But he goes on to say that the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making right the simple. Throughout the Psalms, David says that the words of God are what we need for life. Proverbs tells us that true wisdom, true wisdom is found in knowing who God is. That nothing else, nothing else will give us what we ultimately need apart from the words of God. God reveals himself in creation, in scripture. God reveals himself in our own lives, right? Back in the fall, we talked about, um, we looked at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about the transformation that God through his spirit brings into our lives. And he says that our transformation is due to the fact that God reveals himself to us. That God, through his spirit, takes the veil away, takes the blinders away so that we can know him, that we can see him. And as we look upon him through his word and through his power and through his experience, the experience of that in our lives, that he begins to transform us into that same image. God, we can know who God is by how he works in our lives. And then lastly, and most importantly, God reveals himself ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, as Jesus often does, he spars with the religious leaders of the day. And they come and they accuse him of being a devil. They accuse him of undermining everything about what it means to be a Jew. And they invoke their father, Abraham, and say that Jesus is even, he's undermining Abraham. And Jesus makes this incredible statement. He's referring back to Exodus 3. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And this threw the religious leaders into this. They picked up rocks to stone him because this was so offensive to them. Because what was Jesus saying? I am who I am. The God who was and is and always will be is standing right in front of you. And John picks up on this theme in chapter 1 when he says, The Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God says, you want to know what I am like in a way that you can understand? Here is my Son. Here is Jesus, and Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, tells us what we need to know about God. But God's enemy has planted a lie in each of us from the beginning. You can be like God. You can be like God. And so much of our struggle in this life, so much of the pain that we experience, so much of the frustration and the broken relationships, so much of our hopeless wandering at different, during different seasons of our lives are due to the fact that we believe it. We believe that we are the God of our own lives. 
We believe that we are the God of other people's lives. We believe that we can be the God who creates the kind of world that we want to live in. Humanity has always been caught in this, if you're familiar with Star Wars language, this this tractor beam sucking us towards autonomy and isolation. That we feel like we are all we need. That we are the only God that we need. And none of us would ever say that. None of us would ever roll up into a room and say, I am God. But look at the way that we act. Look at the way that we live, the decisions that we make, the way that we look at the world and the perspectives that we have, and how often we put ourselves as the judge of what is good for us, what is right for other people. God has not stopped revealing himself to us. You may be in a wilderness right now. You may be watching someone else's sheep right now. You may be on plan B or C or even D right now. You may feel like God has failed you right now. And the encouragement that I want to give you this morning from this passage is that God has been, is, and always will be who he is. That when we look back into history and we see the way that God has faithfully and lovingly dealt with his people, we can know that he is the same God who deals with us in that same way today. He may be using a burning bush in your life right now or maybe some less dramatic way to get your attention lovingly, compassionately, to say, this is who I am. This is who I am. The question for us this morning is this. Will you see that? And pass on by? Or will you stop? And will you look? And will you listen? To the God who is. I want to invite you during our time of communion. To not see this as some ritual. Some kind of empty thing that we do but to see this as an invitation from God to come and to listen. To know that God has revealed himself through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That God has not left you. That God has not become detached from your situation. That even if you feel like you are out somewhere wandering, that God is there. And so I want to invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to come and take this this morning with that hope, to to take it as an exercise of faith. It's not a magical thing, as we know, but to take this symbol as a step of faith and acknowledge it, that God, you are here, and you want me to know you in this time and in this place and in this season of my life.
If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're wrestling with things and trying to figure this out, I want to offer that invitation to you as well. That God is saying, come. That my yoke is not burdensome. That I am not going to just heap burden and burden and burden on you. But that it is light. It is peaceful. It is satisfying. That God is inviting you to come and to experience life with him under his gracious and loving rule. If you would like to talk to someone or if you would like to uh, have, have someone pray for you, Brother Tony will be over here on this side of the room and encourage you to make use of that during this time. Let me pray for us. God, we're thankful that our beginning and our end is found in you. And in the midst of a world that, quite frankly, is chaotic, um, is exhausting, that produces a lot of anxiety in our lives, these words speak hope to us, that you are the same, that the world has come and gone and ebbed and flowed for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and yet you have remained the same. And Lord, I pray that you would make us a community of followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, learners of Jesus, that step out into this world as a non-anxious presence, as, a, as people of peace, because we know that our lives, that our existence, that our future, starting when we leave this place, is in your hands the God who is and who never changes. And I pray that we would offer that hope and that peace to our community, to our city, to this country, to the world, that people may find their life in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.